My guest today is a biologist. To be more specific, he's an ecologist. Please welcome Colin Morrison. Colin, how's it going? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Doing okay. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to speaking with you. Good, good. So, all right, let's jump right into it. What do you do? I am a scientist. I'm a biologist. More specifically, I'm an ecologist. I, I work with insects. I work with plants. I work with chemistry. I do work in the field. I do work in the lab. And I say all of those things because the very pure ecologist would probably say, no, you're not really an ecologist. <laughs> the, the, the entomologists are too pure for, for me too. So I kind of work at the, the intersection of different biological sciences. That's great. Okay. Now, how long have you been interested in sciences in general? I'd say I've been seriously interested in science since probably since my first job as a scientist. Really. Okay. I decided to pursue a biology degree when I chose to go to college but I, I didn't really know what that meant at that time. It wasn't the same thing as a love for science. It sort of seemed like it'd be a way to get me outside. Mm. But then a few years later, when I started working in labs, then I realized I really loved science. Got you. Now, what about the move to strictly what you're doing now, like biology and ecology? That really became clear that I wanted to pursue that for the rest of my life in some capacity. Also, when I was an undergrad, I started working in two labs, and they were both kind of ecology labs, but one was a marine ecology lab. There was, there was a little bit more space between me and the organisms because they were on the bottom of the ocean. You can't actually be there and experience them. And, and then the other lab was a plant insect lab that studied uh, caterpillars and what they ate and how that affects ecosystems. After being in that lab for about two years, I was, I was very sure that I wanted to do that forever. Got you. So now you're doing research, correct? That's right. All right. Now, part of your research and your studies, you're part of a group that found that four native species of prickly pear cactus are facing a serious threat from cactus moth, right? Yeah, unfortunately, that is what we found. Mm-hmm. And this is the first study of the cactus moth, right? This is the first study in of Texas. the cactus moth in Texas. Yeah, there's 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 a there's a good amount of studies actually of it in its in its native range and mm -hmm. in other areas where it was where it invaded or was introduced on purpose. So so we have good points of reference to go off of now. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about the study and what's going on and the significance yeah. of it? So my PhD advisor and the lab manager, my PhD advisor is Larry Gilbert, the lab manager is Rob Plows, who who also did his PhD with Larry. So that makes him my academic brother. Uh, they saw, okay, so we'll take a step back. By the time that the cactus moth got to Florida, it was about 1989, yep. give or take a year. Um, and it, it, it went on to establish very heavily in the Southeast, in Georgia and, and going West, far West is there's cactus, basically until you get to the Mississippi River Delta where you run out of, of cactus for the moth. And at that time, Rob and Larry realized that they needed to at least be mentally prepared for the eventuality of it getting to Texas because it was only going to be a matter of time at that point. Um, 
once the moth gets to Texas, it's pretty much pure ecosystems that have cactus at some level, all the way to California, all the way up the Rockies into Canada, and all the way down through Mexico into tropical Mexico and Chiapas and Jalisco. Mm-hmm. So they were prepared for that that eventuality. And then once the USDA reported sightings of it for the first time, they reported their sightings, their first sightings in 2018. Actually, there's iNaturalist records from that area from the, from the previous fall, fall 2017, that are very credible. So that's about how long it's been there. We decided that we needed to do some basic studies. We needed to study the basic biology of, of the cactus and how it interacts with the cactus moth and the cactus species that it eats, which is a strength of the lab that we're affiliated with, the, the Brackenridge Field Lab. Is that a lot of the questions that we answer are, are are fairly applied questions to deal with some sort of biological issue that pose loss to society and, and economically or culturally, but from a perspective of doing really solid basic biology, like mm-hmm. like we're not pest management specialists, you know, like that's the goal we get to. So we decided that the using leveraging skill sets in in the lab, including my own, a lot of experience growing caterpillars or other insects on plants that we should look at the nutritional quality and some of the like really basic physical qualities of different species of prickly pear that are common in Texas that are inevitably going to encounter the moth already or in the very near future. So that approach would give us an idea if, if there was some fairly easy aspect of the plant traits, if something really stuck out, like Certain species has way more protein than another species or has a way thinner cuticle for the caterpillars to burrow in through or is more spiky. You know, something that doesn't require a high costly and, and um, complicated like omics techniques to figure out. Right. But we start there. And our results were that all of these, these common species of prickly pear, native, three natives and one kind of have a horticultural species. It's, it's oh. the... Um, it's the Apuntia ficus indica, which is the one that is grown for nopalitos. So we use those four, and they're all basically the same as each other as far as nutritional quality. There's, okay. there's nothing that, you know, there were some statistically significant differences, but just because it's statistically significant doesn't mean that it's actually meaningful in reality when you look at the data and just think about it logically. So that was one part of the study is that as far as nutritional quality and, and, and host quality, they're, they're different species but they're the same, ecologically speaking. Mm-hmm. We did some other work, some other studies where we went into the field and found populations of prickly pear cactus in Texas where some individual cactus had either native cactus moths because there's native cactus moths too that, that aren't an issue. It's important to remember. Oh. Yeah. So some individuals had the moths, the caterpillars, I should say, and others didn't. And then we would apply that same suite of analyses to compare the quality of these individuals to see if all the ones that had caterpillars had higher protein or, or whatever, something like that. Right. And, and again, the, the, the result was, was, was no, a neutral, that they didn't discriminate on certain axes of host quality. We also did this study in Brazoria County, right along the coast where the cactus moth infestation is pretty heavy. And the result was that they had no preference for particular species. Mm. So it wasn't a, a much of a stretch to infer that, that given those findings and given how common these species are, and you look at a map of their distributions through Texas and other states, and they basically could act like highways, biological corridors that would facilitate the moth moving into Mexico 
or Arizona, New Mexico, where the species richness of prickly pear cactus gets really, really high. Now, you mentioned earlier that there are really no cactus in Mississippi. So what's the theory of how they got from Florida to Texas? Yeah, that's a super question. We would need a time machine to go back and know (laughs) for sure. You can use some genotyping, some genetic techniques to sometimes get a pretty strong inference based off of how related the thing is in the new place versus the old place. Mm -hmm. The possibilities are shipping. There's some kind of shipping merchandise and and horticultural cactus getting getting moved around. But as far as we know, that's not really happening much between Southeast United States and Texas. Our hypothesis that we have no evidence that just, it just kind of, it, it correlates is that we think a hurricane might've blown them over from somewhere in the Southeast. Cause this was right around the time that Harvey had just struck Houston. Wow. That's interesting. And it's becoming appreciated more with, with other studies of other insects that large scale weather events pick insects up and then throw them up into the stratosphere where they're, they're at, they're totally at the mercy of the wind. And if they drop out somewhere where there's resources for them, um, then that, that could be the event that causes the invasion. Wow. Okay. Never thought about that, but it makes sense. All right. Now, what about the, the cactus? Uh, I know you said that the nutritional qualities are the same for these four different species, but what about the built-in chemical and physical defenses of these cactus? Are, are they the same? And does that help at all with the cactus versus the yeah. moth? We only really looked at one true defensive characteristic well two one is the thickness of the cuticle just like like if you build a bigger castle you have a bigger wall it's going to be a little bit harder for for the enemy to get into your castle and and again the the difference in the cuticle thickness was negligible okay and this is important just to take a step back to think about the biology of the moths is is what the females do is they lay what's called egg stick on one of the cactus spines where it looks like each egg looks like a little beige hockey puck and she'll lay the eggs one on top of the other in this long stick, which also looks like an extension of the spine on the cactus, which is pretty cool because it's pretty obvious, like, you know, it's adaptive as far as right. camouflage. But, okay, so then all, it's amazing. Those little, it's, 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 it's crazy. <laughs> These little caterpillars come out, and they're going to spend most of their life feeding internally on the cactus tissue, but they've got to get in there. So... So having a really thick cuticle was was a reasonable prediction. Little caterpillars don't have any energy except for whatever they were partitioned with from their mother, and and their their mouth parts aren't. Okay. Mm. That doesn't seem to be um, be important. Another defense that some researchers that studied the, the cactus moth at Mississippi State for a while found is what they call mucilage, which is just like the slimy water that's inside cactus. Mm-hmm. Anyone knows that, you know, if you if you prepared it, <laughs> it's slimy. <laughs> but they had noted that that when those freshly born caterpillars first start to burrow in is that mucilage would come out of, of some individual cactus and it would literally gum up their mouth parts and it'd be like they got buckets of Elmer's glue dumped on their faces. That would, that would not kill them. It's dark. This happens with like monarch butterflies and plants that produce latex, similar phenomena. So we looked into that. And we found that there's no difference in the level of mucilage that comes out of these different species, mm. that that's occurring fairly consistently too. But as an aside, we realized that only cactus that had been experiencing some kind of natural enemies already, whether that was a pathogen like a fungus or, or insects, those were the only ones that the mucilage was inducible at all. So just as an aside, mucilage 
exudation, we called it, is an induced response. Now, the chemistry is definitely important. And this is something that the reviewers brought up, that there could be compounds that are very toxic, highly unpalatable, at least to the caterpillars. And we didn't look at that in this study. That remains to be presented on in the literature, but we are doing some follow-up studies right now where we are looking into the pretty high-level metabolomics, like entire chemical profiles of these plants. Okay. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. That'll That'll be coming out fairly soon. Nice. Now, what about predators, though, for the moth? I know that there's these parasitic wasps from South Africa. That, that's that, right. They're from South America, where the cactus South America. Yep. Um, is native to. Mm. And this is promising. As far as biological control, parasitoid wasps or flies or insects that, that use other insects to grow their larvae can be a really effective biocontrol if they're really specific. They tend to be really specific. The co- level of coevolution between parasitoids and their insect hosts is very, it's ubiquitous. You see it all over the planet. So in the 90s, the USDA was operating the Gainesville, Florida. The facility still operating, but they started the, a research program where they were bringing the wasps up from Paraguay, Argentina, Uruguay, and keeping a laboratory population going of them and testing whether that wasp would parasitize other native insects. Mm-hmm. all kind they like the, the usda requires that you go through a, a very rigorous list of possible candidates so that you don't inadvertently affect the native insects by releasing the parasitoid and the answer is is unequivocally that they only parasitize the cactus moth the invasive cactus moth as i mentioned that there's native cactus moths too right so right. They, they, they did experiments to make sure that it wasn't going to parasitize the natives Unfortunately, the USDA, that laboratory has lost funding at the time when it's needed the most. So at our lab, like Gilbert, Rob Plows and the leadership, they are looking into getting new lines of funding going through different avenues so that we can continue this effort from Austin, Texas, where it's needed most. Right. Right. Okay. Well, well, hopefully that comes through because that's, that's important. Now, just curious, have you done any research on or studies on, everyone's talking about it now, but the killer hornets? <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't, we haven't looked into the, the giant killer hornets yeah. yet. Um, <laughs> I, I was following that because they're neat insects, you know, like for my inner entomological love, they're cool. I don't think that they ever really became a serious issue. I think it was a couple of isolated incidents where obviously they were here, but I don't think that they've really established up in them like Washington and British Columbia. Yeah, you're right. It seems like there was a lot of fuss about it. And then after that, didn't really hear too much. You heard a little bit about scientists going out there and tracking them down, but not finding the queen. But besides that, you didn't really hear much about it at all or much about anything happening to any bees. Yeah, you know, that, that was the concern because there has been research done by some Japanese researchers that the hornet's native to eastern China, Japan, <laughs> the Koreas, and bees honeybees european honeybees that have been populations that have lived in that area of asia for a long time they've developed some behavioral defenses to be able to confront the hornets yep they basically just just mob them with right many bees where where the burned them to death right yeah the temperature it it just it cooks them (laughs) the european honeybees that we have in north america they haven't evolved that behavior so so that wasn't right these hornets were just going to come and destroy an already perilous industry with, with the honeybees. Right. Yeah, wow. yeah exactly. I thought they were going to wipe out the whole bee population. All right. Now, can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? Yeah, it's, it's pretty variable. 
probably a little bit less variable with the pandemic this year, but on a typical day, I might be over at the laboratory for a little while down on Lake Austin Boulevard at Brackenridge Field Labs, checking up on some of the, of the plant cultures or the insect colonies because they're like pets or really easy children, I guess, but they, they need some time. They don't take days off. So I'll go and just make sure that they're doing all right. Make sure the roof hasn't fallen in. Then I might yeah. come home and, and work on doing some data analysis for a while and, and some writing. Always a bit of time doing administrative stuff and accounts. And one of my goals is, is to is to increase my funding level to the point where I could seriously like hire a personal assistant because it <laughs> takes a lot of time. It gets it gets a little stressful, but do a yeah. little bit of that. And then, yeah, that's a fairly typical day there. A little bit. Of right. Okay, and then you mentioned plans, and I just thought about this. I saw an article recently and I just skimmed it. I didn't get a chance to read through it thoroughly, but it was talking about trees communicating with each other and kind of an altruistic, I guess, uh, skill that some of these trees have. Did you see that New York Times article? I have not seen that, okay. but, but I, I followed that literature. Mm. People first reported about this in the 70s, but they were pretty much laughed out of science. That's what and, I said, and- yeah. And there was a whole lot of misogyny and a whole lot of just really inappropriate stuff behind all that. But the, what those people found is truly groundbreaking. The plants definitely communicate with each other via chemicals or, or via, or via the roots. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah. It was very interesting. I'm going to read it after this. I didn't get a chance to read it thoroughly, but yeah, definitely interesting. All right. So now what skills and characteristics would you say are important to be successful in your line of business? Yeah, so I was thinking about this before we came on today. Some really important life skills that facilitate being successful in this in this field. Where there's sometimes it's it's challenging to to realize when a success has been had or or when a goal has been passed because there's just kind of moving targets that are happening all the time that, and it's just sort of inherent in science that it's never done. Mm. So to be able to really reflect and and develop perspective on, on truly what one is accomplishing and, and be willing to give praise to oneself, take care of oneself as, as they move through this process is really important because if you lose sight of that, then it could seem kind of like you're trapped in it. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's something that I've worked on a lot. I like always continue to do that just to check in and put it in perspective and be happy with my, uh, my progresses. Another very important skill in being a researcher is, is to be adaptive. Oh yeah. <laughs> to see the opportunities when they present themselves because it's fair that, that someone really asks explicitly and provides the opportunity to, to have the success for that. You got to be paying attention. And also in the same train of thought to know when to cut your losses and drop something and move on. And typically I'll have several things going simultaneously, partially because I just, I like the variability in that, but it allows me that space to be adaptive. My main dissertation research is is not on the cactus. This is, this started as a, as a side project that I am just really invested in like, really? believe in the cause of it. Yeah. But I, I would normally be spending a fair amount of my time down in Costa Rica or Panama doing field work down there. And that was totally off the table this summer. So because we had made progress with the cactus biology and it was work that could be done locally, like I was able to pivot to really focusing a lot more on that this year with, with restrictions on travel. And that's just an example of that kind of adaptability that one needs to cultivate 
Yeah. Yeah, it must be amazing to do your work in Costa Rica. I spent a uh, semester out there and it's just an incredible country, all that it has to offer, but also just that 25% of the country basically is protected. Right. And so you see some of these species out there that you might not see other places. It's really encouraging because by the 70s, there was only about five or 10% of Costa Rica left forested. It was, they were heavily deforesting and dull fruit had pineapple and banana plantations for as far as your eyes can see. It was was very different than it is now, but the values of the government, the people wind up and they decided to do it differently. And now there's major financial incentives to promoting biodiversity on one's properties. And Costa Rica is a lot smaller than the United States, but still I would call it a success story. Yeah. And global conservation mm. of biodiversity. All right. Now, talked about this a little bit, but can you talk about the steps you took to get to where you are today? Yeah. So, so first off, I had the privilege of being able to go to college. That was that was fundamental to it all. Mm. I had to do that. But, but from then, really, the key steps were. Yeah, I was working my way through college, and and I and, the, and if I was going to work in the lab, I needed to be paid to do it. I, I couldn't volunteer a lot of time, and and I I, I fought the right people that were that were good people that became my mentors, but but they were able to pay me to do the work. And, yeah, and, nice. and they, they they empowered me to do it at a pretty high level given my level of, of experience at that time, and that that was huge because just to see these people that I really looked up to um, believe in me and give me the space to make mistakes and learn uh, my confidence really crazy because of that and that's that was huge and then staying persistent i didn't go to grad school right after i finished my undergrad it was probably about five or six years in between but i was trying i got rejected from grad school like seven or eight times like every time i'd ever applied until the university of texas at austin <laughs> accepted me I was still working. I was still I was still working as as a as a as a technician or research assistant during that time, but just stayed persistent and didn't lose sight of the goal. Right. That's great. That's great. And you mentioned being paid to do your work earlier. I know you were awarded the Stengel Wire. I might yeah. be saying it uh, incorrectly. Pronouncing no, that, it correct. that's correct. Oh, okay. Wire. Okay. The graduate uh, fellowship. So is that what you were talking about as far as no, getting funding, or is that something that's, different? That's something different from from that time. Okay. But that's an example of that at this point. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that was a UT, the single well, wire. That's right, yeah. yeah. The first money I got paid to do science was originally, it came from the National Science Foundation and their Research Experience for Undergraduates program. Okay. It's a huge program that I would encourage any of the listeners to, to check out if you're an undergrad or if you have kids that are in college. It's a competitive program where undergrads apply to work with different STEM labs. It's not all biological sciences. There's technology and math and stuff, too. And they they send you out to to live and work at the, at the, um, the either the field site or the university or whatever for three or four months, and the students will develop independent projects under the guidance of established faculty members. Now that was the first thing that started for me, and and now I get to be an RU mentor now at the my field site in Costa Rica, nice. which is so cool because you know like that that was it that was. The, the, probably the biggest tangible thing that happened to propel my career forward. So it's nice to be able to give new generations of students the space to explore that. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier that I didn't have a love for science right away. I didn't really, I was kind of naive about what science really was. But I figured when I went to college, I was like, okay, well, I'll be a biologist because biologists get to go outside, mm-hmm. right? Well, biologists, <laughs> that, sounded, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> And that's the case. I, I do stuff inside too, but just a love for hiking and 
exploring, seeing nature. That's that's yeah. one of the coolest things that I get to experience with this job. And that, and that that involves a lot of travel. And then with the travel, like gotten to learn different languages and gotten to meet cool people all over the world. You know, it's just just great for my my perspectives, my political perspectives, my cultural references, everything. You just have a much more fuller view of people and how they relate to the technology. That is awesome. I didn't even think about it that way, but just for you to seeing, all, like you just said, all the all the people, all the cultures, being outdoors, all the travel, all that because of your work. That's that's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, sometimes it's important to remind ourselves about this. It seems obvious, but most people get into doing science or biology at least because they like animals and plants mm -hmm. right like at some level and, and they probably care that they want to see them exist all biologists are conservationists at some level so sometimes it, it can feel a little bit far away from the actual conservation or, or the actual situations that exist that, that prevent conservation from happening right. like it should. but um, striving to contribute to that that's a really gratifying thing to to, to work towards that cause okay all right now what about on the flip side what type of challenges are out there for you or obstacles yeah so <laughs> the self-doubt <laughs> the uh learning new things all the time and and and, and if, if i'm talking these things out with colleagues it's easy to lose sight like oh, oh like learning new things and taking risks all the time is 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 fairly uh I wouldn't say that's a super common way of living and that's a, yeah. I can't, I can't beat myself up about feeling that way. Just kind of experience it and just go for it and, and know that like, what's the worst that can happen if, if I don't do this analysis correctly or this experiment doesn't work, you know, the world will go on, but being able to take a step back to, to really see that for what it is, is just hard. That's, it's a struggle all the time. Right now as climate change, affected your work at all like it may be droughts that are out there in austin and other areas that happened before or forest fires or things of that nature yeah definitely the key one is the global decline of of insects not just diversity but just abundance total biomass of insects that are declining like crazy all over the planet even just since the time that i've really been looking at insects on like around lights or something where insects congregate at night at the same places the amount of insects that I would see at, a, at a, a light in a biodiverse place like Arizona or Costa Rica or something 10 years ago is dramatically different than what uh -oh. I see now. This has been documented empirically by many scientists at this point in Europe and Africa and, and Latino America, North America, everywhere. That's fairly obvious. And that makes it hard. I mean, that's just sad. And that's just not that that gives me a lot of cause to be concerned about the future. But it, but it, it just it makes doing the work harder, too, because yeah. I have to find it. And honestly, sometimes I'll get cynical about it and think, what's the point <laughs> if it's all just going to go away? But it hasn't all gone away yet. And, and, if, and understanding really basic things about it, doing science for the sake of just knowing things, is always going to provide better informed people the means to manage things in a, in a holistic way, like what we're doing with the cactus business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, there's just numbers that have dropped for insects. Are you saying that this is mostly due to uh, climate change? Yeah, you know, in a diffuse way, there's 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 no silver bullet, but it's it's many things. It's it's light pollution, it's noise pollution, it's it's huge levels of of insecticide, pesticide, yeah. herbicide that gets it. It's 
it's insects getting hit by cars. It's it, it's it's habitat modification. It comes down to a lot of it. You massively change ecosystems and turn them into factory farms, and then all the nitrogen and all the input you require into that, and eventually it becomes a desert anyway. Yeah, that's there's no more space for insects or any other animals that are going to exist at higher trophic levels that ultimately depend on the insects or the invertebrates in general, you know, cause this, this is definitely the situation for any kind of invertebrates in the ocean or aquatic systems too. Now, what about the deforestation in Brazil? Do you talk about, and I don't know if this is still going on. I know at one point, I think in the summer, they had talked about this and just how much of the oxygen, the trees in Brazil are responsible for, for the, basically the whole world and a lot of the deforestation that is occurring there. So does that have anything to do? It's huge. Yeah. Because there's none of these processes when they start to break down and in in ecosystems are, are additive. You don't just add problems on they're They're synergistic. They, they, they start to spin out of control in ways where the, the result of two bad things happening is not going to just be adding them together. It's going to multiply most likely is is what scientists are finding all the time now. Cause as you deforest huge part of Brazil, or this could be taiga or conifer forests in in the North too, that that fundamentally changes the weather and other patterns of things that would be occurring around it. The tropical forests in the Amazon basically create their own rain. But once you've taken away enough of that, then the, then the drought that's occurring already is even further. And you get these crazy situations where there's massive forest fires burning through Brazil, like unlike any that, that people have ever seen and at least recorded since people since anyone's been recording this kind of information where that where you see a lot of this with methane and you know being released from peat and bogs and tundra and things that are changing fundamentally in the north too no one predicted that yeah but then they start to see it happening where there's the, the forces get multiplied but the it, like it starts with with the deforestation is a big yeah. part of it and the land use change have you been over there and and I remember hearing something about that forest is just so huge and it's just uh, just a just an animal over there that it's actually there was a city underneath it i don't know if you heard this about after the for deforesting they, they were able to see like a an older city underneath it wow i did not hear about that that is pretty fascinating yeah like the, <laughs> that, that that lost city or the fountain yep. of youth. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 insane that that that, that could happen because when something there's 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 different paths of, of succession what we call ecological succession where a disturbance happens like a volcano erupts and mm-hmm. lava literally cut like like nothing's growing and then there's going to be a community of organisms that are the first to recolonize that and then that will predictably become something else and something else until it reaches a climax where it's not going to be altered from that position that it's at as far as the, yeah. the, the composition of the community the climate change is really, really challenging because it's altering those successional trajectories in ways that are very difficult to predict. But you can't, you can't even necessarily just leave it alone now and have right. it go back to what it was going to be before because so many other parts of the whole machine have changed. It's not a lost cause by any means, but it will be if nothing changes as far as our agricultural and land use yeah. habits, almost certainly. Yeah. What about memorable moments? Do you have any memorable moments in your career that stick out? Yeah. So I, I mentioned I used to do some marine biology, and, and I had a great experience doing that with 
awesome mentors. I remember the first time I got to go out to sea on a research vessel to go collect samples. And we sailed from, from Greece, from, from Piraeus, which is the port attached to Athens. And we were going out to, to collect these organisms from these crazy ecosystems called deep hypersaline noxic brines. They're, they're, they're brine pools that exist on the bottom of, of oceans. When you finally see it with the submarine, uh, unmanned submarine, it looks like a black lake on the bottom of the ocean. It's so bizarre. But on our way out there, this was, this was a year after the first revolution ended in, in Egypt with um, Tahrir Square and the um i can't remember it was like a, a color revolution but the year after that there'd been some kind of regime change to some different like cabal of military people and a lot of people were fleeing egypt and this was kind of right just the beginning of of the huge refugee crisis in the mediterranean and we picked up a ship of sinking refugees in the middle of the mediterranean oh. like decisions were made based off of international law of the sea i, I don't and i don't know I wasn't, definitely wasn't party to those decisions, but it was decided that our vessel was the one that was in the best position to pick up these people. And that was just a really crazy, amazing experience because we saved them and we brought them back to, to Greece. And something about the flag that we were flying and where they got picked up, they, they got political refugee status immediately. They didn't have to go through the same channel as trying to walk over from Turkey. So hopefully them. those people all made it, you know, and ended up wherever they wanted to be at, but... That was just nuts, starting yeah. off the experience that way. And I, I learned that I don't get seasick easily, at least. All the experienced oceanographers say everybody gets seasick at some point. Everybody does. Mm. Jesus, if you haven't, you haven't been in rough enough water yet. <laughs> a lot of people were seriously sick. And I, and I was like, well, I, I, I'm blessed with an equilibrium that's in decent shape, I guess, but... Did, did did that work for a while and and i realized that it was very cool it was very interesting but i it, but it wasn't what i wanted to do mm. so all those memories were super but it gave me some clarity about um what i really wanted to do yeah besides that one thing you you've mentioned for the unmanned sub do you remember any other species or any other things that you you saw that stood out yeah, this is just kind of grim but we saw a bunch of trash on the bottom of the really? Mediterranean, which is this is just we saw these barges of car batteries that had clearly been sunk because it must have been cheaper to do that than wow. deal with them. And that was just, you can't escape the modification of, of things at some level. And we were pretty deep. This, these were somewhere on the neighborhood of 2,500 meters. So that's like 8,000 feet deep. Wow. On the brighter side, we saw some deep sea fish and jellyfish that were they almost transparent, like, Oh, wow. You had to shine these, like, searchlights to see them, and they're just living really slowly. They probably live for hundreds of years. Just every five years, maybe, they get some food that comes down to them. I don't know. Are but, they blind? I don't know if they are, but I would guess. Mm. There's very, very little light that's making it that far. It basically, every, every all the organisms are just persisting off of whatever's coming down from the open blue water above it. Wow. And, and we saw tracks of things that were moving around on the, the floor of the sea. We had no idea what they were, but there's some kind of animals were walking or skimming along down there. That was very nice. mysterious. So, okay, so, that, all right, so that's interesting. So the unmanned sub that you have down there, how long does it stay down there so you can kind of see what's going on? 
it has a maximum time that it can be at depth and i and it's it's a function of the batteries um you know there's giant generators construction site generators on the deck of the ship that are powering it but there is some limits to it but we would we would have it down for eight hours or so like pretty long time and on on the front of the submarine there's two joystick arms that the an engineer is operating from a control unit on the ship and in front of those arms there's a basket of buckets and things like different sampling tools pretty basic stuff really like buckets and you would move your arms and say all right i want to take a sample of that part of the brine or of this sand or or whatever And then a lot of the, and then there's instrumentation that's that's attached to the submarine that is recording things like temperature and salinity, pH measurements like that. Wow, yeah, very interesting. All of it, I know that the biology part of it, everything is just all interesting to me. Oh. So, <laughs> well, hey, Colin, this is the end of the interview. Want to head to this quick hitter session where we're going to ask you some questions for fun just to get to know you a little bit better. But before we do that, though, just want to see if there's anything additional that you would like to talk about or anything you feel like I might have left off asking you. No, no, that was that was great. You know, thorough. And we went around different places. Uh, I haven't thought about a lot of those things I've said in a long time. (laughs) I appreciate the opportunity to to reflect, you know, like I've said a couple of times, the reflection is is really important to the success. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Great. No, that's good. I'm glad I could do that. (laughs) All right. So the quick hitter questions. First question. What's your favorite sports team? Oh, the L.A. Dodgers. All right. I thought yeah. you were gonna say the Raiders. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, the Raiders in Vegas now. Yeah. I've been waiting my whole life for the Dodgers the World Series. That was one of the coolest things that happened in this crazy year. Yeah. They've been like four times in yeah. the last five years and then they just choked every time. Finally got it. Yeah. Now there's a few years that I thought for sure that they were gonna get it. Two years for sure. I thought they were gonna get it. All right, favorite movie or show? Oh what movie of all time is apocalypse now mm. what about favorite musical artist or group Ooh. my favorite musical artist would have to be Jimi hendrix oh uh, yeah that that guy yeah. just he played so well I, I literally every day of my life i dream about being a rock star <laughs> in the guitar like Jimi hendrix i don't think that one's probably gonna happen but you know, <laughs> I, I definitely dream about it every day nice yeah, yeah, he was he's awesome. I mean, everyone looks up to him that plays the guitar. Favorite vacation spot? Oh, okay. Um, I never really had like a vacation spot that I went to regularly in my life, but, but I always loved going to the beach. And that, that could be growing up in, in Nevada, you know, in California. Go to the beach in California was great. Yeah. But, uh, the, the beach in Texas is nice. The beach on the East Coast is nice. Costa Rica has great beaches. I, I just love say, it. Panama, Costa Rica, right? Yep. yep. All right. In Costa Rica, is it like the Caribbean side, Limon, that you go to the beaches or Monteverde or where? I haven't been to the Caribbean side in Costa Rica yet just because I haven't had time, which is mm-hmm. kind of insane because my the research station is actually fairly close. But when I was living in, in Panama, I lived in Panama for a couple of years. I, I liked the Caribbean side, mm-hmm. which is better because um, it was just like t- totally cool, like Afro-Caribbean culture around yeah. there. It was awesome. Um, and the water was a little bit cooler. Yeah. I remember the water on the Pacific side of, of Panama was nice, but it was kind of warm. Mm-hmm. And I stepped on a stingray one time. It's oh, dang. That st- stabbed me like crazy. It was, it was an intense experience, but. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, 
In Panama? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I realized why why there was no one at the beach on such a beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you had it all to yourself. Yeah, the, the locals knew because this one family saw it happen and they came over and I explained to them what happened. They're like, oh, yeah, you stepped on this thing, right? Definitely. And I was like, oh, you didn't see it? No, I didn't see it. You were in the water it. and oh, ouch. Yeah, oh, man. Here's, here's a PSA. If you're at a place where it, they're known to be stingrays hanging out in the sand, you got to do the shuffle. Like, don't walk through the, the, the water. Pull your feet, and, and you'll scare them probably before you step on them. Okay. Ouch. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And favorite food or drink? Oh, my favorite. My favorite drink for all ages to enjoy it's probably ginger ale i really like ginger ale yeah i got some right here i love ginger ale <laughs> ginger ale is popular in costa rica and panama too you know there'll be you know different fruit juices and stuff but if there is a soda at a place there's there's always coke and, and canada dry ginger right ale. right yep so refreshing after a hot day yes sir <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, Colin, this is great. This has been really great. Learned a lot from a lot from this. Just so interesting to me. And just congrats on all that you've done so far, man, and continue doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. I appreciate the opportunity a lot. Thanks a lot for putting this podcast on, giving folks a platform there. That's a, that's a great service. Well, thank you. Great. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, have a good one. All right. Oh, wait, wait. Same. Sorry, before we go, is there any way that people can reach out to you if they have any questions, comments, questions? Sure, yeah. definitely. Email is the best way. And my email address is C, as in Colin, R, as in Richard, Morrison, M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N, at utexas.edu. Perfect. Send me an email anytime. Um, you can also check out my website where I've, I've got a contact box on there and, and uh, the information is written down and that's colinrmorrison.com. Great. All right, Colin. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.